Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by a debut author who, whose book you have to, have to, have to read. Mohini Vara has worked as a Wall Street Journal technology reporter and is the business editor for The New Yorker. Her fiction has been honored by the O. Henry Prize and the Rona Jaffe Foundation. From a Dalit background, she lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. Her debut novel is called The Immortal King Rao. Congratulations, Mohini. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Yeah. I, I, I was, before I press record, I, I was telling you that I was so gratified to see Justin Taylor's rave for King Rao in the New York Times because he really highlights the fact that this book is so big and not big, just, you know, it's 370 pages. I've read bigger, but in scope, it's, it's humongous. So tell me where you would want to start in, in talking about it. Oh, geez. <laughs> I thought you were going like, to give me the easy way out. And I, I have a hard time, um, like, it, I, I have a hard time figuring out how to talk about this book also. Uh, another thing you and I were briefly talking about before we started recording is like, just how different it is to write the book, write a book, and then like have to, to articulate in spoken language what the word book is about. Um, <laughs> uh, so I also feel like it's about a lot. I mean, like thematically, I wanted it to be about um, sort of like social systems and mm -hmm. um, especially economic systems and the way those have, have evolved over time. Um, but I also wanted it to be like a domestic book, like a book that sort of lives in a sort of like domestic familial sphere, um, which sometimes I feel like it talked about as those as though like those are very different worlds. Um, not. So I wanted it to be both and I wanted to bring those together. Yeah, that's great. And I love um, that in the course of this book, you're going backwards and looking back on um, King Rao's life and the lives of his ancestors. And at the same time, you're looking forward and imagining what the world might look like in 20 years or so. And um, that's scary. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the research that you did for this book. Yeah, so um, I my dad grew up on a coconut grove in South India that's very similar to the place where King Rao grows up in the 1950s. Um, and so to write that section of the book, I, I'd gone back and visited that place like as a child a couple of times. Like I wasn't somebody who went, my, my family's Indian American, but I wasn't somebody who traveled with my family every summer back to India, like some people do. Um, so I had some familiarity with it, um, but it definitely didn't feel like intimately connected myself to that place. And so um, uh, while I was in graduate school, I took like a couple of weeks one summer and I went back there um, to my dad's sort of home ancestral village where we still have family members living on that land. And um, I went back, I don't speak my family's language. So I went back with um, a cousin and uncle of mine and they helped translate. And I interviewed a bunch of, of family members and relatives and just people who lived there um, around the time that my dad grew up, which is the, the same as the time that King Rao would have grown up mm -hmm. um, and just took a ton of notes and like asked really dumb questions and like the dumbness of my questions felt like they informed my way of thinking about the book too. Um, and then I also, you know, I'm a journalist. So like I did approach it partly as a journalist. Like I went and talked to 
scholars um, and like I talked to a coconut researcher, um, I talked to people like that just to sort of like feel like I could understand that universe. Um, and then to figure out like the, the both the part, there, there's a part that's set sort of like in the 1970s to mm -hmm. somewhat contemporary times in the US um, and then a part that's set in this dystopian future. Um, and for those parts, I relied a lot on sort of like my own reporting knowledge um, as, a, as a tech reporter. So like I had read, as a reporter, I had read like biographies of Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And I went back and reread books like that. Um, yeah. And I also just like over the course of my job as a reporter would take assignments. Like I took this assignment for Fortune Magazine writing a story about an AI company in Canada, which was partly, largely because I thought that company was interesting and wanted to write about them, but definitely partly because like I wanted an excuse to go learn about AI and how it works, you know. I love that your interests could overlap in that way. Yeah. Um, I was thinking um, Halt and Catch Fire was my main reference point for the entire uh, 70s um, microcomputing portion of the book, which I really enjoyed. Tell me a little bit about creating the company Coconut and how that may or may not be similar to another company out there and, and the ways that they're similar and, and, and what you wanted to um, touch upon. Yes. So I wanted, um, I wanted there to be these sort of like real life cultural reference points for sure for this company, Coconut. I always like, as a reader, I sometimes have a hard time actually reading like books with alternate histories because I'm like, oh, it didn't happen that way though, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is totally beside the point, but just for me as a reader, I, I read that way. And so like, it felt helpful to me, like imagining a reader like myself, it felt helpful to me for this company to like have some grounding in like, the way things actually happened in the 1970s. Um, and there are some elements that are a little bit like I don't know, like inside jokes or not so inside jokes, right? Like the fact that the company is called Coconut um, has a very, like there's a very organic reason for that in the in the context of the book. Um, yeah. Like we were saying the the narrator, I mean, the, the protagonist of the book, King Rao is born on a coconut grove, um, but, um, or rather is raised on a coconut grove, but, um, but like that it's obviously intentional that that like that might remind people of, of Apple. So, you know, I, I told you I read all these biographies and like had studied that sort of like that period of tech history. And I did sort of like intentionally bring some of it in, but then was also really thinking about like what it would mean for King Rao in particular to sort of like live at a time like that and be starting a company at a time like that. So like the fact that he's an immigrant is really relevant. And of course, like Bill Gates and Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs weren't immigrants. Um, and so like his, the, the particulars of like where he came from and who he is, I think like end up sort of informing the ways in which the history of that company diverges from like the history of the companies we are familiar with. Mm -hmm. Hey guys, I want to tell you about a product I'm using literally every day. I started taking AG1 because just with everything going on in my life, I am really bad about consistently taking vitamins. The best part, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It's kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what's in this stuff? In one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. 
special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. Which is great for someone like me who's always on the go, especially with all my running. It's really important that I'm getting my daily source of vitamins. Um, but just because I'm so scatterbrained and organized chaos, I just completely forget um, unless I have something that just really makes it straightforward to get everything I need. And AG1 is lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free or gluten-free. And the best part, because while maybe I don't say I'm a healthy eater, at the same time, I really do focus on what I eat, that the fact that it contains less than one gram of sugar no GMOs, and no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good is really important to me. And the extra benefit is it supports better sleep quality and recovery. It also supports mental clarity and alertness. And that's because Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. And best of all, it only costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. You're investing in all-in-one nutritional insurance. And because I said I really do care about where the things I consume come from, Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that supports projects protecting old-growth rainforest, as well as donating to organizations that help to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S., in 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. And right now, you can reclaim your health too and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Maris. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Maris. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Even though come together is a uh, similar catchphrase for, for both. Totally, yeah. And then, of course, we look towards the future and it seems like, so in terms of what, coconut is and what it became I mean I can see it I can see it in your reported works I can see the the seeds of of such a thing but tell me a little bit more about that yeah so you know as a tech reporter I think like many of us who are tech journalists look at the way companies are now and it's easy for us to imagine like a future in which these companies become even even more powerful even like their their leaders even wealthier their shareholders even wealthier um and also like more politically influent politically influential like it like it's easy to imagine that future but there's no like it's difficult to write about it based on the facts that are at hand now right like it's something that like we can imagine could happen in the future, but it wouldn't really be responsible journalism to like, you know, speculate too much about what's right. going to happen. And so it felt like fiction. fiction. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly. So it felt like fiction was like a helpful place to do that. Um, and so I was thinking about these companies um, that we're all really familiar with and that some of which I've covered in the past, like Facebook and um, Twitter and also like Apple and Amazon and Oracle, these older companies, um, I was thinking about like 
what it would look like if like that kind of power um, and um, and like both politically and economically sort of continues to grow and like just like sort of map that out in my mind and that sort of like became the future in which Athena's um, Athena, who's who's King's daughter and the person who's narrating the book, um, in which she's she's living. Yeah, I I mean, the fact that here's a, a little side thing that I loved. Um, you even get into a topic that's so big right now on Twitter, um, which is free speech. <laughs> <laughs> and you even talk about how at the height of his power, King Rao was on social every morning, and yet you can't message him. You can't really talk to him. And um, that really struck me. Thanks, Elon Musk, I guess. Yeah. Right. There's like this illusion of, um, of accessibility, right? Yes. Like there's this way in which these figures like Elon Musk are like, I'm just like you, like I'm gonna be an idiot on social media just like you sometimes are. Um, but like the rest of us don't have however million followers he has. Um, and right, like there's no way to actually contact him. Um, and with companies too, like, you know, like like I, I was, I found on the other day, my. Um, somebody told me that they like looked for me on Instagram, which I'm barely on. Like I have a real Instagram account and this person looked for me and she found like five Instagrams under my name. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. Like, what do I do about that? And she was like, you know, as a tech reporter, you'd think I'd be able to figure this out. And she yeah. was like, you need to write to Instagram and tell them to take it down. So I went on Instagram's like website and I clicked the thing about imposter accounts. And I filled out this form like four different times because there were four different imposter accounts. Um, and then I sent it, this was like days ago. And then this morning I got an email saying from Instagram saying, because of COVID, we don't have enough people to process these, these messages. So we actually can't deal with it. And I thought it would be like, like give us a couple of weeks, but instead they were like, we can't, we can't deal with it. Like just try again later. So like, you know, like the world I'm imagining where like, we just can't access these companies like there are these black boxes is like actually not too distant absolutely um I, I like that they're kind of transparent about that though but rather than just like <laughs> please wait on this queue forever <laughs> true, true. <laughs> um and so you mentioned Athena she is the narrator of this um multi-generational saga um Tell me about figuring out who she is and what her point of view is. Yeah, that was really, really hard. Um, so I, um, when I started this novel, um, my, my dad actually gave me the idea for like the sort of like very beginnings, like the germ of the idea for the novel. Um, uh, he was like teasing me about the fact that I was just like in graduate school writing short stories and he was like, you should write a novel. So I was like, all right, dad, what should I write about? And he said, like, how about you write about something based on the coconut grove where, where I grew up? Like there was a lot of drama in my family. It's a good story. Um, and I was like, I mean, this was after two really bad ideas and this was a, and then this was a third. And I was like, oh yeah. Okay. Like that is a good idea. But then, because I, as I mentioned, I like was I, I didn't have like a deep familial 
like it, familiarity um, and intimacy with that place and what with what it would have been like to grow up there in the 1950s, I was like, that'd be a cool story to tell. Like, to what extent is it my story to tell? How can I tell that story, you know? Um, and I was watching my husband and I, also a writer, the writer Andrew Altschul and I were watching um, Battlestar Galactica at that time, like the mid 2000s reboot of Get Battlestar Galactica. And there's this technology in there where like, um, like a sort of like, downloading of consciousness digitally is possible and so I would at some point I was like oh well if I could have like some kind of consciousness that's not actually King Rao growing up on this coconut grove in the 1950s telling the story that would solve almost like this craft problem you know yeah. like this would solve the problem of like not being able to like embody King Rao exactly myself and so that's where it came from like the idea so sorry I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself but so I needed to have like some consciousness. So I like created this voice that was like telling the story of King Rao. And for the first like many years of writing the book, I had no idea who this like voice was. Like it was just like this, this voice swimming in the ether. At some point, like maybe six or seven years in, my husband read a draft and he was like, so does this person like have a body? Like, are they embodied in the world? Are they human? And I was like, I don't know, but I don't think it matters. <laughs> I think it might matter. Um, and so eventually I realized that the narrator was actually King's daughter um, and that King has created this technology that allows her to tell his story. Um, and then for many more years, um, she was just still just telling his story. There was no like narrative. She didn't have her own narrative in the book. And then people, friends again, and my husband would read the book and be like, well, what about her though? Like, she's the one telling the story, like what's happening in her life. And so that narrative that I think like people, readers probably consider like the main narrative of the book of like Athena moving through the world and contending with um, her dad's past and her own past um, came really late. And like, was it really was like pulling teeth. Like I had a really hard time figuring out like what she was about and what she herself wanted. I didn't realize for a long time that like that was even important to the book. Um, uh, and it was just like a lot of drafts of writing and rewriting and rewriting and like the voice changed. Like, I feel like as a reader, I sometimes think like I'd open a book and I'm like, well, that voice must've been there from the start. Like, that's probably what you start with, you know? Um, but for me, like it just, she went in so many different directions before I finally figured it out. I love hearing that. Cause I feel like there are some authors who will be like, it was just there. Yeah. <laughs> Hear it in my, in my dreams. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> she was speaking to me translated to the page okay. <laughs> and of course Athena is telling this story as she sits in a prison um named for we find out I don't think this is spoiling anything is it I don't think so I know what okay. you're for her for her own mother and I assume it was something similar like that wasn't if she didn't exist in the first few drafts, um, you had to kind of create that space. Yeah. Um, and the idea of like what kind of quote unquote crime she might have committed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, um, like she had to have a reason I realized for telling the story, you know, like there was this voice telling the story and then 
I wasn't the one who figured it out. Like my husband and friends and other readers are the ones who told me like, that doesn't, you know, like you can't just have this, disem- I mean, I'm sure you could, but you it could, wasn't working but... in my book, you know, yeah. to have this disembodied voice. Um, and so like, then she needed all the, it's like what you learn in like uh, high school and undergrad creative writing classes. Like she needed a reason to exist. She needed like some reason she needed to tell her story and some sense of like, stakes and all of those like really basic creative writing 101 things that like just hadn't occurred to me um and so um and so to like put her in a prison and to make it clear that like telling this story is like very urgent like she has to tell this story as part of her attempt to to sort of you know exonerate herself make it out of where she is um accomplish what she wants to accomplish next yeah. It, and I, I feel like she she has lived a life so secluded just with her father um, that part of you figuring out who she is is also Athena herself figuring out like what does it mean to be a 17 year old girl who's only ever met her dad? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, living in the world in which we live uh where we're also interconnected you know like it was hard it was that was hard to imagine you know to like imagine at, like growing up in s- such a secluded way and like just like imagining what it would be like to like encounter other humans for the first time you know like I was I feel like I was figuring that out kind of as she was figuring it out scene by scene like she gets to um she leaves home she gets to this other island where other people live and the first person she meets is this man um and in writing that scene where she's like encountering a man for the first time, like I was realizing as I was writing, just as like she ends up realizing on the page that like there are all these sort of like social codes around like being a young woman and an older man. And like, like there are ways that people behave that mean a certain thing, but she doesn't know all that. She doesn't understand all that language yet. And I think it's so interesting too, because in this world, uh, when she grew up with her father, at least, she was able to very easily um, search the internet. And yeah. so she has all of these reference points, but it, it's just never, it's not the same. Yeah, right. Like she she understands on some intellectual level the way the world's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like when it comes to like the sort of like visceral, physical experience of being in the world among people, like she's totally flummoxed. Yeah. And so she joins this fringe group, the exes, who kind of opt out of, of living in the world that King Rao has created. And it becomes such a great story about idealism versus actual practical ways of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I feel like that's that's for every section of the book where that's like, okay, w- what if you want to do good in the world? What what does that entail? Right, How do you not hurt people. Yeah, that was a big question. <laughs> <laughs> How do you not hurt people? Okay, let me tackle that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. I, that also was a really difficult section of the book to write, like the, the inventing the exes and like the, the way they experience the world. Um, because there's an extent to which like, I really identify with and admire, um, 
that way of being in the world. And then at the same time, like, uh, so, so part of what they do is they, um, they don't, they're not connected to the sort of like, um, techno, technology, technology systems that are used in the sort of mainstream world, um, both to like give people access to the economic system and social systems, but also to control people. Like they've, they've opted out of that, but by virtue of opting out of that, they have no way of like spreading the message about their philosophy. Right. So, um, so there was some, there's something like inherent, inherently limiting about that. Um, and so I wanted, I had to like figure out how to like write about these people who I find in, in many ways, like just really admirable and interesting um, uh, while also not just like, you know, valorizing them and having them be like sort of like flat heroes of the book because also like there are ways in which um, the way in which they've set up their society is also imperfect um, uh, and impractical. Yeah, and it, I, I, I feel like, uh, and you'll tell me if you don't wanna talk about this again, because it's, I, I, I don't know what's a, what you consider a spoiler, but there's a point in King Rao's young adulthood when his uncle basically says, you know, we, there are all of these complicated ways of living. There are so many different systems in the world. There are so many ways to be as a person. And he just says, try to do more good than bad. Yeah. And I, I think about that kind of thing all the time. Like, yes, that's the, that's like the main thing we're going for. The, right. the question is how? Yeah, right. And like, like, I think there are several different characters in the book who are like, like whether they know about this concept from this character or not that mm -hmm. are like trying to do that in their own way. Um, but then like we all get in our own way or like rather like our ideas of like what that means are so skewed and like informed by like our own biases and perceptions and misperceptions about the world um, and our own ambitions, like our own personal ambition, right? Um, yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, so it's almost impossible to figure out like how to actually do that in practice effectively. And, and you capture so well King Rao's childhood in which, I mean, and it's in your bio, um, having an upwardly mobile Dalit, feels like yeah of course you want those characters then to be free and to be able to think about themselves first because when have they been able to and um that doesn't work everywhere on the planet <laughs> right yeah i mean like there are all these characters from his like on the coconut grove where he comes from everybody's Dalit, like is all his family members and, and friends, like that's his social circle. And like many of them view Dalitness and caste identity in like really different ways. You know, like there's some people who sort of like understand it on a really political level um, and sort of like identify the, the wrongness of, of caste oppression and caste hierarchies. And King, and this is very deliberate, like King to an extent recognizes that I think. Um, but I think to the extent that he has a solution to it for himself, it's like a pretty individualistic solution. It's like, 
all right, well, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to move to another country where like caste isn't, you know, like in the context of the book in the 1970s, right? Um, caste um, oppression won't be as present as it is in India. I'll be surrounded by white people. They won't know what caste is, you know? Um, and then he's going to, and then he goes there and he sort of makes his own way and he's very successful. And then he does like eventually create this social system that, you know, sort of, um, reinforces existing social hierarchies um and um and that was intentional you know like um uh I, I think a character like King Rao like wouldn't necessarily start a tech company and become really successful and then you know like suddenly have a, a kind of like a, awakening and and understand like systems of oppression all of a sudden when he didn't before yeah and I I love that um, so citizens are, are shareholders, um, and, and in this world, they're meant to, they, the shareholders, all people, are meant to be on equal footing, except that you have a line like, except that the prior richness of the rich and the poorness of the poor, well, that will be grandfathered in as well. Right, right, which we do, right? Like, I think we do that every time we, like, think we're coming up with a better system, you know, like at the end of apartheid and, you know, the end of slavery, right? In mm -hmm. the in the US, like, like there are these opportunities to like totally revamp the way we do things. And yet like it feels, it seems like history shows that what we actually do, do over and over is sort of like, just like create a new system, but then entrench the old ways somehow into the new system. Exactly. That, that seems like a, a great place to end with. This book is, so wonderful and congratulations again. Um, before so we go, Vahini, would you like to recommend some books? Yes, I would love to. Um, so I recently um, um, picked up this book called, or ordered this book called Father Maybe. I was telling telling you before we got on the on the line that like I always forget the name of the book and you'll see why. It's called Father may be an elephant and mother only a small basket, but, and the writer is Gogu Shamala. And the book um, was put out by Tilted Axis, which I don't know, is that, that's like a UK press, right? I think they're, I think a, so. they're a UK press and I ordered it from the UK and it arrived, you know, like a week and a half later. And, um, and it's written by a Dalit female writer um, who was raised in a village and she's writing about village life. Um, it's, it's a short story collection. It's been translated into English. Um, and it's really interesting. Like, I just like, I love the stories and I just love reading books where like, um, where like the, the, the literary traditions are like totally different from like, you know, your European and American literary traditions where like, it feels like a story is breaking some rules that you thought were rules, but like, it's really effective and it's like on its own, you know, like ac according to the, the rules that it's following. Um, so I love that book. I highly recommend it. Um, the book I read before that was also set in an Indian village, this, this book called The Story of a Goat um, by this writer, Paramal Murugan. And that was published. Um, well, anyway, people can look it up, I guess. Um, <laughs> I feel like it was, um, story of a goat I feel like it was a an independent publisher here in the U.S. um but it's um it's about um 
a goat in a village. It's about like the goat and the goat's keepers, like the couple who owns the goat. And it sort of like dips in and out of the goat's consciousness um, in a way that like sounds on the face of it gimmicky, but is really beautiful. You're nodding. Have you have you read it? No, no, I'm nodding because uh, I, I want to uh, check this out. It's I will really look good. it up later. <laughs> really good. So those are, those are two. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.